I'm David Heitler Clevens. And I'm Rodney Wittenberg. And this is Music for the New Revolution. You will not be. All right. Well, we are here in the studio with Charlie King and Martin Swinger. We are very fortunate to have them visiting us on their way to performing tonight at the Folk Factory Coffee House. Yes. Welcome to Music for the New Revolution. Well, thank you. Yeah. Where our carbon footprint is very small this morning. <laughs> That's right. We are doing this unplugged recording. <laughs> this entire recording comes to you on the on the strength of two AA batteries. The three AA batteries. <laughs> oh, I, I misspoke. Uh, yes, there was a, believe it or not, on the eastern coast of Pennsylvania, a number of tornadoes and a horrible rainstorm. And uh, we actually have the door open, so you'll hear some traffic in the background because it's the only way to get light in here, because we have no power. Power has been out now for about 14 hours. Well, we've been working in the dark for three years, yeah. so we should be used <laughs> Only three years? <laughs> <laughs> but we are so happy that we are able to put this show together, since you are here. Yeah, we're happy to be here. Would you like to start with a song? Um, sure, we were, were actually prepared for that. Excellent. <laughs> Looked like you were. This is a, a retelling of uh, my father's economic philosophy. I grew up in a real right-wing family, and my father had an airtight explanation of why socialism would never work, and this is his position and my response. They say if you took all the money on earth and dispensed equal portions to each child at birth, that after a while it would all find its way Back to the same handful that holds it today Well, I'm willing to give that a try Everyone gets a piece of the pie When we give the money to the many at the bottom Wait for it to trickle up to the top Give the money to the many at the bottom Top dog waiting for his trickle up Rosalie dwells in a dump, cleans hotels for Donald Trump. Swap their salaries, she sits pretty, penthouse suite, Atlantic City. The money trickles back to Don, he can hire her husband Juan, pay them both a living wage. Trickle up, it's all the rage when we give, give the money to the many at the bottom Mortgage, credit card, 
hires Don Trump to rake his yard. Oh, Trump invests in a landscape biz. No, someday it'll all be his because he gives the money to the penny at the bottom. And wait, wait for it to trickle up to the top. You got to give, give the money to the penny at the bottom. Top dog waiting for us, trickle up. Top dog waiting for us, trickle up. Please wait. That's great. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I have admired about your songs, Charlie, for a very long time is, you know, how you capture the essence of a, a political argument in a song like that. Well, thanks. That's what I'm shooting for. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you come to have a sense of uh, a different belief system than your dad? As someone who also has a completely different belief system than my father, how did well, you come to that? I think leaving home was essential. I had been, you know, living in eastern Massachusetts, working on the Barry Goldwater campaign, going to John Birch Society meetings with my dad. And, and then I left home and ended up in college with a roommate who was a um, disabled, gay, Jewish civil rights activist from Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> so he was used to adversity. And, uh, <laughs> I, was no, I was no match for him. And uh, so him and uh, and then the war, the war in Vietnam, it was mandated that we be in ROTC classes. And I started learning a little bit about military science. And then I started learning stuff about the Vietnam War. And it just didn't fit with the kind of image of the United States and the United States military that I had grown up with in my house. And so I, I began to change, eventually became a conscientious objector. But I think I was kind of softened up even before I left home by folk music. Discovered that when I was a sophomore in high school. My dad actually liked the Weavers. He liked Peter, Paul, and Mary. So it was sort of kind of a common ground. But I didn't get it. Uh, I remember going in to hear Phil Oaks. Uh, at uh, the old Club 47, it's past seems now in Boston, Cambridge. And uh, I was thinking, I'm thinking like, does he really say that? Does he really mean that? This guy's a communist. You know? but, uh, so uh, it, it, it stretched me, but eventually it brought me over to the other side. And, and how did you come to your beliefs uh, politically? Uh, political beliefs. I was very lucky to grow up in a household that was uh, very much engaged in the civil rights movement down in Georgia. Uh, my parents drove all around town and picked people up and said, no, you don't have to know how many bubbles are in a bar of soap to vote. Uh, and uh, took people in and started a clothing bank in the basement and things like that. Very actively engaged. What wasn't engaged was uh, the word gay. The concept of being gay did not exist. When I grew up, I didn't, I knew I was different, but I didn't have any role models, uh, except as Charlie and I were talking this morning, role models like Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. <laughs> Boy, there's something you want to grow up to be like, right? But, uh, but so I grew up with a very open mind, but still trying to figure out how I fit into the world. And as Charlie said, as we all do, you know, we leave home and then we begin that road of discovery, figuring out who we are and how we express ourselves. Uh, so I was a very late bloomer in that respect, was probably 22 before I came out to anybody, but uh, had certainly thought about it a lot, had already written songs about it. You know, in the early days of songwriting, we process our thoughts by writing songs. So a lot of songs I wrote that uh, are now just in past history, I've pretty much forgotten them. They were just step by step trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, and so now I'm uh, much more uh, uh, out with 
as a performer, trying to be right out front about who I am without making a huge deal out of it. Janice Ian was a beautiful role model for me the first time I heard her perform, and she just mentions the word wife and goes right on, and my jaw hit the floor. It's like, oh, can you do that? Can you actually do that? And I've learned, you know, in the years, I've gotten very comfortable about saying I wrote this song for my husband 25 years ago, and, you know, we're still together, uh, and, uh, and just move forward with it that way, realizing that just flat-out blatant honesty is the only way to do it. And uh, if there's a problem, it's the other person's problem. It's not my problem. Wow. Uh, it's interesting. You, I guess you're talking about growing up in the 50s and early 60s. Yeah. Um, I just saw um, Green Book recently. Oh, yeah. And, I've seen um, it. I've heard about well, it. Well, you know, I am identify as straight, but I'm very gay-friendly, and I'm also an extremely sensitive and emotional male. And what blew my mind about watching Green Book was the issues this guy was dealing with the year before I was born are the same issues that I struggled with my whole life, which in some ways made me feel uh, kind of happy. <laughs> in another way, I was like, wow, this struggle is going to go on forever, it seems like. And so is, do you have a, a sense of the transition from then to now? Like, does it seem easier or better in some ways? Or? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, I think ACT UP was probably the primary moving force that got the words out there because ACT UP realized that George Bush is never going to say the word gay unless we force him to. And that's what ACT UP was about, was uh, civil disobedience and sometimes not quite so civil, forcing uh, the news to put it out there. Uh, so that really helped change the discourse a lot, as well as just the changing times that these things started coming forward. You know, in my day, it was the Rock Hudson story and the Liberace story, these people who were pretty darn obvious to a lot yeah. of us, <laughs> but it still couldn't be said, you know, until after they were dead, you know, it was finally, uh, you know, finally said out loud. So this is all always interesting to me, too, because my mentor in college was Camille Paulius, and she was probably one of the first adults that I met that was out and was teaching in a university and was a big influence. The question I had for you, because you, you hit on it, and this is for both of you, you were talking about these were therapy songs. One of the things David and I talk about is that as we do a show about political music is so often political songs are just not very good. So how do you make the distinction between, or do you when you're creating it, do you make the distinction between a political song and just a really good song that just happens to have this message in it or takes this position? Uh, personally, for me, uh, Charlie's the important person here, but uh, mm. personally, for me, <laughs> I, that's a very political thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've just always approached songwriting. I'm a student of poetry. Uh, I love poetry, and so it very much is about writing a good song. I don't think of myself as a political songwriter, but being an outperformer, that kind of automatically makes me a political songwriter. Uh, some friends and I produced a uh, produced a, a concert several years ago out in Provincetown, and we called it The Big Taboo, because women can be out on stage, but the number of gay men that are out there performing, you can count on one hand. Uh, so, uh, so in that way, in that respect, I am a political writer, 
but I'm really, I really approach from the songwriting standpoint first, uh, and then the message uh, is whatever the message is. I happen to be a forward-thinking person. Charlie. Well, I certainly have written a lot of bad political songs. Um, and, uh, How do you define that? It's the song I wrote because I have to sing at a picket line this afternoon. You know? um, and its main virtue is it hits the nail on the head. And it's very rhetorical. It's in your face. It's picked a side to be on. It stretches rhyme and meter in order to list an agenda of issues, something like that. I, I would have to say I'm pretty much always a political writer, but the best opportunity is when a story comes to me or forms in my mind or, or when um, a quote or an idea comes to me that I find to be inspirational or warning. Ideally, when people hear a song that I sing, they're going to think about things in a new way. Maybe a, a limited spectrum of things, but somehow there's an aha moment in the in the, in the listening to the song. Yeah, excellent. Well, uh, would you like to do another song? You want to do one of your own, Martin? Let's, uh, let's, yeah. let's go for the Peter and Lou Derrick. All of our bedrooms are gilded and burnished with every conceivable luxury furnished. Security guards always lurking here somewhere and calmative drugs at the hint of a nightmare with eider-down pillows of thousand-count satin on twelve-poster beds with a view of Manhattan a soothing and comforting sight so why do you people keep asking us how we can sleep at night with dreams of our limousine fleets holding steady and jets on the tarmac all fueled up and ready and hundred foot yachts for our white house connection and choppers to whisk us in any direction now even our house of accountants relaxes they've worked it all out so we barely pay taxes the future is peaceful and bright so why do you people keep asking us how we can sleep at night if ever our government lay down the sword creating a dip in the dow we might need our nightcaps more liberally poured But everything's booming right now And thanks to the coming of privatization They'll no longer nick us for free education We won't have to spring for the old and the lazy or pop for the health of the wretched and crazy. We're calmer today than we've been throughout history. So why you would ask us this now is a mystery. We don't get it, try as we might. Why, why do you people keep asking us how we can sleep at night? Why do you 
So that's half of a Peter and Lou Berryman song. Half? Yeah. <laughs> Literally keep, half. Does it keep going? Uh, no, <laughs> but a lot of the middle is missing. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. One thing that that Peter Berryman and, and Rick Burkhardt have in common is that they assume that the, the listening public have a very long attention span. <laughs> and Wisconsin and accordions, right? Yes. yes. Essential. <laughs> Essential, yeah. What is it about Wisconsin that seems to be breeding these incredibly clever songwriters? Well, actually, Rick's from Illinois. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. But he but was in close. Wisconsin for a while, right? Uh, Andy, his, his uh, was... singing partner, lives in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Yeah, that and, and Rick did live in Madison for a while. <laughs> so I think you use sarcasm in that song. Would you say like, like how you were talking about the people who what why they ask them to sleep at night? So is that a tool that you like to use in? Songs? It's a tool I'm accused of. <laughs> um, I, I prefer the word satire or but, satire. Uh, <laughs> okay, how about irony? Our uh, irony, uh, right? irony. Yeah. <laughs> so do you ever find that people hear the song and not get the irony in it, or 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 the satire? Um, I think. I mean, sure, it's possible, but I, my audience is a pretty self-selective. So beyond the people that I can see when I'm singing, I, I really don't know. But I. I I try not to be too subtle. Um, <laughs> I, I remember having a, a, a discussion with one of my favorite songwriters, Dave Gordon, and I said, you know, I assume when I write a song that people are only going to hear it once, and I want them to get it. And Dave said, oh, isn't that interesting? I assume when I write a song that people will hear it many times, and every time they hear it, I want them to hear something new. Mm. So different approaches. Both good. Yeah. They're both good and they're both completely valid. Mm -hmm. Yes, you've got to, it's got to make sense the first time, but it's always great. You run into those musicians that I can just listen to the song again and again and again. And uh -huh. the subtlety of word choices, mm -hmm. uh, the pauses where they put them, mm -hmm. those kind of things communicate so much uh, in, in the thing. Especially if we're as performers, when we're listening for those kind of things and we're trying to learn uh, from them, it's always great to have good writing. Yeah, and good delivery. And good delivery, too. Both important. Oh, yeah, Charlie and I were talking about our mutual admiration society that we both enunciate. <laughs> <laughs> what a pleasure it is to sing with somebody who enunciates. <laughs> Did you have an elocution class in school? Oh, yeah, I was uh, doing all kinds of uh, public speaking classes and poetry recital and that kind of thing. So, And then theater was is my background, so very much about making sure those, making that, sure the words come through. Yeah, and that fits very well with the idea that you want people to understand what you're putting across. So, yeah. When um, Roy Zimmerman yep. was here, one of the things he talked about, which is really interesting, he felt like he was a journalist and that he's communicating the news do you feel that way in some of your songwriting that you're hoping to inform and educate your audience or mm. is there a sense of that for you I, I you know i see myself in a songwriting tradition that includes phil oaks and and that was his field journalism i used to when i used to perform well i used to fly everywhere back when it was affordable and i would read the new york times in the plane and then i would read from the from the newspaper on stage i don't i don't do anything like that anymore and a number of people have said that all of the news comes to us pre-satirized now i think it was, <laughs> it was paxton who said you don't have to satirize them you just have to quote them so um, <clears throat> I, I found myself less and less inclined to get dragged down into that 
swamp. Can we say swamp? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm writing way less than I used to. You know, I used to write a dozen songs a year that I would record and then a bunch other that I wouldn't. Now, if I get, you know, three songs in a year, it's a good year. Um, so I don't think I want to spend that time reporting the news, you know, but analysis, I think if I can find a, uh, a way to look into things that feels fresh and insightful, I'll, I'll do that. I remember a song of yours, I think from the eighties, that was about how the news ignores, you know, some of the kinds of stories that, that you cared about the news, the blues, yeah, the, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that had a lot of. Uh, yeah, that, you know, that, that alternative was... <clears throat> take on media. Yeah, and it had to do with the fact that I was sitting on that plane reading the New York Times and going like, what kind of a world are we living in? And then I get off the plane and I'm singing for people who have a safe house for women or a soup kitchen or are sheltering Central American refugees. I said, what a great country this is, you know? <laughs> if you only if you only knew these stories. Yeah, when you went to Phil Oaks and I, as soon as Rodney asked you that question, I was thinking of that title, <laughs> All the News That's Fit to Sing, you know, and that was so he, his journalism obviously went into the concept of songwriting. But I, you know, I know, do think that, you know, if, if you, even if you're not looking at it as journalism, there is a way in which telling these important stories and, and bringing out certain aspects of issues mm -hmm. is a kind of journalistic endeavor. Yeah, well, we're, we're saturated with information, but finding new ways to talk about it is, is different than that. I, I heard, uh, I can't even remember the name of this news commentator. He's an old Democratic Party curmudgeon who does news analysis on PBS with David Brooke uh, on Friday night. He was saying how the president was pulling troops out of uh, Syria and sending them to uh, Saudi Arabia, he said, because those people stood beside us on the beaches of Normandy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, what a great thing to say, you know, in such a short period, it makes such a good point without like, you know, trying to um, beat them to death or insult them, you know, just like, huh, hello, what are we doing here? I know for myself as a songwriter, I find these times, particularly the past three or four years, three years, just so hard to pick a subject to sing about because it feels like, oh, okay, I should write about, okay, that's out of the news. No one knows about it now. Okay, well, I can make it personal. I don't know how to, but I didn't personally experience it. So how would I do it in a way that makes it, because one of the things I love about Tom Waits as a writer, I always think of him as what, like a silent or a sneaky political writer is that he'll write something, but it's, it's not overtly political because it'll be a story about these people and, it'll really hit you emotionally and you just start going, oh my God, that's so powerful. And I think about trying to do that, but then I go, well then, but people won't get the message. So mm -hmm. I got to send it to them. But the question is, do you find that it's harder in this era now where there's so much information coming at you and it goes by so quickly and people have short attention spans. Is it harder to find something that you could write about that will connect with people? I, I think the big challenge for me is feeling like I have something to say that I haven't already said a half a dozen times. Um, and when I come across some door that opens there, then I walk through it. But other than that, I just sit in front of the computer and try to get jobs. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh -huh. Yeah, I don't take on political issues very much. I have in the past, like Charlie says, you know, you find yourself the opportunity to speak out about something. Uh, and you throw together a song and it holds together for that period of time and and then you let it go. Well, wasn't it Tom Paxton that always encouraged people, write songs that have a shelf life. Go ahead and write the song. You know, good or bad, it'll be gone tomorrow, but 
do it today. Is there something new that you'd like to play? Or that you maybe that you're working on? That, that's well, this in... is, uh, uh, I'd like to share a song. It doesn't happen so much now, but uh, not so long ago, the number of political and religious leaders we've had that have done so much to oppress gay people, and then something happens, and oh, we find out that they were gay all along, and that they were using, they were using their power as a shield. And that is always uh, irritating to me, and the antecedent to that is to go ahead and come out and just let people know it's a safe world, be who you are. So I've got a song called Hiding Out Blues. Uh, I was in the closet for 22 years. I grew up on the grounds of the state mental institution. Uh, my dad worked in a, as a business administrator there. And in 1966, Time Magazine came out with the word homosexual across the top. It was the only Time Magazine that I ever grabbed and ran to the bathroom so I could read this thing. And it was all about how they were connecting electrodes to certain parts of people's anatomy and then showing them pornographic pictures. And if they responded to the wrong pictures, they would get an electric shock on their certain part of their anatomy. Uh, and that's when I uh, locked the door and swallowed the key realizing here we are at a mental institution, dad could probably have that done to me. So I was 22 before I ever came out. And so those things are, are what fed this song called Hiding Out Blues. <laughs> I saw you walking yesterday, we passed on the street, you looked in my eye. See you walking with some friends who don't have a clue I winked back at you But when you answer me, I read your message Please don't destroy this disguise Hiding on the city streets, hiding from your friends Hiding from the family, the hiding never ends You can do your hiding any way you choose Those hiding out blues. Your color's clear as a bell. You're not fooling me, you know I can tell. It's written all over you the way that you are indelible blue. You try to keep it in. You pray to wake up, please don't let this color be true. Hiding on the football team or in a business suit. Hiding in the government or as a new recruit. You can do your hiding anywhere you choose. How do I know what's happening to you? But 
news of this kind would ruin you good. You have to run away where no one knows you and love won't remember your name. Hiding on, uh, hiding on the parking lot, hiding on the road, hiding on the highway you think nobody knows. hiding out you'll get those hiding out you're always hiding out That made me think of a documentary I saw. Have you heard of the movie Outrage? I have not. So heard it's that. about it's about a couple of people who were gay activists who are kind of controversial because they outed various mm-hmm. politicians and religious mm-hmm. leaders who, you know, because of their being closeted, exactly like you were talking about in the introduction, you know, were doing damage to other people. And so the idea of outing other people obviously is controversial, but in this case, to me, it felt very justified because they were, you know, kind of trying to stop this victimization that was going on in that. that just, I think, again, part of what goes goes on, I'm 64. In most of my lifetime, the words did not exist. The concept of ally did not exist. That someone can safely say, I am an ally without necessarily coming out. And that wasn't part of the lexicon. And so I think that's how a lot of people ended up in that position of having to do something else to uh, to hide behind where being able to say I'm an ally today is a perfectly viable shield as well uh, to use. It's safe. And so you're still lifting people up instead of pushing people down. Excellent. Charlie, you got a lot of great songs, too. <laughs> many, many, many hours of great times. I wish we had time to do, and hopefully we'll be able to get you back, you know, either together or individually to do this another time too. Sure. But, uh, but do you want to do one uh, more song before we finish up? Um, uh, as a duo. Yeah, as yeah. a duo, yeah, yeah. Or, However or you would like. Yeah. Well, actually, there's, there's, yeah. you asked, um, have you got any new songs? And that really... Narrow the field down considerably. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do have a few, but this one, I, I've been reading James Cone and Travis Smiley and thinking a lot about Martin Luther King and the last year of his life, which started with the Riverside speech against Vietnam and then work on the Poor People's Campaign. And he saw his strongest allies abandoning him because they felt like he was weakening the message, alienating allies, and that uh, ultimately he was leading them down the road to failure, and they didn't want to fail. And he gave a speech a month after the Riverside speech, 
And in it, he said, you know, we go down to Washington, we demand justice, we don't get justice. They failed. We didn't fail. And he had this quote in it, and it just really struck me. He said, when you stand up for justice, you can never fail. And I thought, like, I know so many people who have been standing up for justice for 20, 30, 40 years, and, you know, they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They don't even see the tunnel sometimes, but they just keep showing up. And I thought, what a great message to share with people. So, um, yeah, one way to do that is to put it into a song. Martin set his heart on the poor people's campaign. His allies and advisors told him, don't go down that trail. The work's too hard, the road's too long, you'll come back empty-handed. He said, when you stand up for justice, you can never fail. You can never fail. You can never fail. Take up the task at hand, lift your voice and take a stand. When you stand up for justice, you can spoke his truth to power about the war in Vietnam. His enemies and friends all told him, stick to civil rights. He listened to his conscience and he knew the cause of just of peace cannot be set apart from justice. It is all one fight. I always found it interesting that he was assassinated when he was bringing people together, like working on the rights of the poor people, which bringing was bringing black and white people together. And that's when he got killed. It seems like 
yeah, we don't like the civil rights thing, but that's okay. You're mm -hmm. just organizing. You we can we can live with we that. can live with you organizing people of color just as long as you stay over there. Oh, you're getting poor people together? No, you can't do that. It's just and it seems like that is the the struggle that we're that we've been in since then is how do you unite the working class and poor? Because if they got together, they'd have a much more powerful voice mm -hmm. than the wealthy. Yeah, and we were just talking this morning. You know, when when Donald Trump talks about workers, he's talking about white men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's not including all the workers. In fact, not even not, 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 even, not, even, a, not even a strong minority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. yeah, you know that song. I just heard the Utah Phillips song. I can't remember what it's called about. We're building a, a ship, and we yeah. may never sail in it. Yeah, that, those two go real nicely together. Oh, nice! Yeah. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. That's a wonderful song. Yeah, it's a hard thing for us to remember, though, isn't it? Because it's like you know, we want to see results of the work that we do, and and we often don't. So it's really that's really helpful, I think, to have that kind of reminder that uh, it's the, a couple it's the of stories come to mind. One is about the old man who goes to, he lives in Jerusalem, he goes to pray at the Wailing Wall every day, and a tourist sees him. He says, uh, what are you doing? He says, I'm praying. He says, what are you praying for? He says, I'm praying for peace in the Mideast. And he says, this is the first time you've done it? He says, I've done it every day for the last 30 years. The tourist says, every day for 30 years? What's that like? He said, well, it's like talking to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> But there was another story that was more hopeful. <laughs> if I could just remember it. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us, probably myself included, we've been lulled into the belief that justice and rights are handed to us, uh, that are given to us. When there's so many more of us than there are of them, that powerful them. But uh, part of the rhetoric keeps us all separated from each other. Uh, in so many ways, divided. When if we can just find more ways to pull together as a group, that is where our strength lies. Uh, Charlie's got a great song, Somewhere to Begin. A song is a good place to begin. Love is somewhere to begin. So we've got to look for those. And uh, as musicians, I think that's really what we're after, is to get whoever is out there listening and get them to recognize that, yes, we are one group, that we are together on this, even if we disagree about the details. And I remembered the other story, which is okay. one, one that my, uh, my partner who, who died five years ago, uh, Karen Brando, she worked for eight years, eight very hard years in Guatemala, working with the trade union movement. And people down there talk about bringing a grain of sand to the building of a mountain. And they say, you know, they know that there are other people coming with their grain of sand, and, and eventually we'll build that, that mountain. Yeah, that, that's a great thought to end on, but do you want to end with the song together? Something maybe in the key of A? Yeah. <laughs> or G. How about something in the key of G? Break them on down, break them on down, break them on down, these walls between us. Break them on down, break them on down, break them on down, these walls between us. Break them on down, break them on down, these walls between us. Break them on down, break them on down, these walls, these walls, these walls between us. Break them on down, break them on down, break them on down, these walls between us. Break them on down, break them on down, break them on down, these walls between us. Break them on down, break them on down, these walls between us. 
Break them on down, break them on down these walls, these walls, these walls between us. Tumbalas, tumbalas, las murallas entre nosotros. Tumbalas, tumbalas, murallas, murallas entre nosotros. Break them on down, break them on down. Break them on down these walls between us. Break them on down, break them on down these walls, these walls, these walls between us. Thanks so much to Martin Swinger and Charlie King for joining us here at Music, Music for the, the New Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> You've been listening to Music for the New Revolution. I'm Rodney Wittenberg. I'm David Heitler Clevens. Music for the New Revolution is produced at Melody Vision Recording Studios in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Music for the New Revolution is written and produced by David Heitler Clevens and Rodney Wittenberg. And edited and co-produced by Ben Flax. You can find us at musicforthenewrevolution.com or MFTNR. Like us on Facebook and follow our Spotify playlist. And our podcasts can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. And you can also be a patron, a supporter of our podcast on Patreon. This is Music for the New Revolution. Spend it all today and we will build you tomorrow. Three-piece suits and bank accounts in Bahamas. Wall Street crime will never send you to the slammer. Tell all the children in the arms of the mamas. The F-15 is a homicide. For a pop a pill, cold chocolate, drug talk.